The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, July 31st, 2022. That's it, Rios. Let's go to work. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the fourth digest of this second volume covering Monday, July 25th through Friday, July 29th. And we start with Meanwhile Monday. This is the sixth entry for Meanwhile Monday, which is a peek into the behind the scenes at DC Comics in the early 80s by way of Dick Giordano's monthly column as managing editor, which was entitled Meanwhile. It was once described by Dick Giordano as gossip, important dates and events, chit-chat, and other stuff. So this column can be found in DC Comics, cover dated of July of 1983, which means these comics were released in April of 1983. And you can find this column in about 80 to 85% of all of the comics that DC released in uh, that month with that July 1983 cover date. Things like Action Comics 545, All-Star Squadron 23, Brave and the Bold 200, DC Comics Presents Annual 2, Flash 323, Jonah Hex 74, Justice League of America 216, Legion of Superheroes 301, Sergeant Rock 378, Wonder Woman 305, and so, so many more. This particular column is more or less a day in the life of Dick Giordano, and it is summed up at the end of the column. Some of you asked just what does an executive editor or managing editor or editor-in-chief do? So Dick decides to outline his day, and that particular day is January 28th, 1983, which I believe, if my notes are correct, uh, was a Friday. So two things as I read the entire column. First off, it reminds me of the Daily Rios Digest in a way because it's just hitting different parts of his day and different parts of his day uh, relates to some part of his job, whether it's meetings, whether it's having conversations with editors, whether it's having phone calls about future projects, uh, needing to get some artwork, etc., etc. And secondly, it also reminded me of uh, the whole Watchmen thing, the Dr. Manhattan meme that goes around, you know, it's 4 a.m., I wake up. It's 4.20, I'm at my uh, desk inking a page. It's 6.15, etc., etc. Anyway, so Dick is 50 years old at the time of writing this column. And as I said, it's a day in the life in both his, uh, both at his home and at DC, inking, commuting, meetings, more meetings, phone calls, decisions, and then commuting back home. So he lives in Stratford, Connecticut, and his day begins at 4 a.m., where he spends 90 minutes, once he gets up and has some tea, he spends 90 minutes inking. Uh, apparently maybe just on one page. And he wrote here, this was page six of the special Teen Titans book concerned with drugs. It's a 28-page book by the regular Titans team of Wolfman and Perez, but this one's being done for the government. The anti-drug message doesn't interfere with it being a good story, and so we may also release it to the general public as a special. Obviously, what he's talking about there is the first New Teen Titans drug issue, the first of three, and he continues that he finishes inking the figures on page six at 6.15 a.m. and will have Bill Collins finish up on backgrounds. Too tight a deadline for a part-timer like me. Uh, This drug special was released to schools and students first. Uh, released as giveaways, and then eventually was sold. I remember getting a few of these. Um, If you have any of these issues, these New Teen Titans drug issues, uh, and only the first one was done by Wolfman and Perez, Um, if you have them with cover prices on, then that's actually a later 
that's when they sold it to the public. That's not one of the giveaways, obviously. Um, this one has the cover with Speedy holding a child while, while the Titans look on. Obviously, it has the character of Protector, which was a stand-in for Robin, because Robin, uh, the each issue was sponsored by a company, and this first one was sponsored by Keebler, and Nabisco owned the rights for Robin, uh, so they couldn't use Robin. Um, I hadn't heard the, the name Bill Collins before, so I looked it up. Bill Collins is an inker on All-Star Squadron, Infinity Inc., and Blue Devil all around this time. And page six of that drug special is uh, when the Titans are in a hospital. It's kind of like a hospital scene. There's not much going on action-wise. And then we get to Dick's commute from Connecticut to New York, which takes over 90 minutes. Uh, he drives a 78 Monte Carlo to the railroad station. At 9.30, he has a meeting with Paul Levitz, VP Operations, Roger Slifer, which, uh, who is an editor, and Bruce Bristow, who is a marketing editor. The topic of that meeting, or at least one of the topics, uh, a new reprint line to now be comic-sized on Baxter paper, hopefully. And Dick writes, it will increase reprint rates for artists and writers 400%, he says. Now, the, the reason I like doing this meanwhile column look is because I get to investigate uh, what it is he's talking about, right? Since this is all, this all has happened in the past. So it's a July 83 cover date. Books came out in April, and we're talking about a day in January of 1983. So that reprint line uh, would come about, and the first one, at least as far as I could tell by looking through, you know, a ton, ton of timelines and things, was the seven-issue Green Lantern Green Arrow reprint series that began in July of 1983, actually released in the month of July. Um, then there would be one in February of 1984, which was Manhunter by Archie Goodwin and Walt Simonson, but that was only one issue. The New Gods got a Baxter reprint for six issues in March of 1984. Man Bat, Man Bat got one issue in September of 1984. And then Immortal Dr. Fate got three issues in October of 1984. That one was by Martin Pascoe and Walt Simonson. And then I do know there were others, including a Dead Man um, reprint series. So they're talking about it in January of 83. The first one comes out in July of 83, but the majority of them come out in 1984. Dick mentions that at the time, there are only two reprint series that DC has, but their digest form, digest format. The small size makes the good stories less impressive and the off size isn't popular with retailers, he writes. So those would be Best of DC Blue Ribbon Digest, which was up to issue 35 in January of 1983, and that'll run up to issue 71. And then the other one is Adventure Comics, which was now digest size as of issue 491, and that was up to issue 498 at the time this column was written, and would only last up to issue 503. This is all pre-trade paperback, um, you know, uh, at least in, uh, I mean, they had them, but it wasn't very popular. And it looks like this decision to um, go to to a comic book size for reprints, it allowed them to have better quality, but then the quantity goes down, right? Because they can, those uh, digest reprints were something like 96 pages. And they didn't always focus on just one character or one title. Sometimes they would jump around. So it looks like this decision was good in on one hand because you got these really nice comic things, and they're trying to figure out how to reprint old, older material, but they don't come out as much. So you get better quality, but not a lot of quantity. Okay, prior to lunch, he deals with a few odds and ends, talking with Pat Bastien, who is worrying that freelancer checks won't be down from payroll until late afternoon, which means artists and writers that come to DC offices will have to wait for them. There's a song that is still being sung today. 
Uh, Roy Thomas calls from L.A., wants to know if the title for his new project has cleared copyright search. How can we promote it if it doesn't have a title? I have to imagine he is talking about Infinity, Inc. At the time, Roy Thomas is writing Arrak and All-Star Squadron and Captain Carrot, and uh, the first issue of Infinity, Inc. would release in December of 1983. So there again shows you a timeline of events. And there was a previous Meanwhile column where Dick Giordano talked about having a few new monthly comic titles sold on a non-returnable basis. And that would be uh, those um, few titles or, or many titles that were released on Baxter and they were sold specifically to comic book stores. So uh, this is Roy Thomas talking about Infinity Inc. When Dick Giordano comes back from lunch, he talks with Don McGregor who brings in a rewrite for Nathaniel Dusk number one. It was a complete script initially, but Gene Colan felt constricted and made some changes to open it up a bit, which require, required a partial rewrite to bridge the gaps. The final result of the two working off each other is near perfect. Uh, again, a little behind the scenes there. Nathaniel Dusk number one would drop... November of 1983. Now that makes me question, does Don McGregor get two vouchers for that script if he wrote it once and then has to rewrite it, or is that part of his job? A few other things here. Ernie Colon and Roger Sliffer come in to talk about the up upcoming year's worth of content for New Talent Showcase, the first issue of which would be released in October of 1983. DC is still releasing... New Talent Showcase one-shots every, you know, they, I think there was one like in, I don't know, 2019, 2020, so that's a title they still have in their library, um, not as often, obviously, but every now and then. Then uh, we get a quote to Frank Miller, where Dick says, I really need the art for the Ronin poster by the 17th, I'm assuming February 17th. Ronin number one releases April of 1983. And when I did a Google search, I found three posters. One of them is just a sort of recoloring of the first issue cover. And the blurb says, if you intend to die, you can do anything. Ronin six issues uh, every six weeks, beginning in April. And then there's another image, another poster image which is of Ronin set against a vertical sword. And then there's a third mini poster consisting of eight vertical panels that are, that are uh, various images from the book, I believe. So I don't know which one Dick is specifically talking about. I have to imagine the cover was probably already done by this time, or maybe they decided to use the cover because... This art was running late, and then eventually they get that second image. So um, I'm sure there's an article somewhere that probably talks about all that. Here's the best part of his day for me, anyway. Starting at 3 o'clock, he writes, Doug Mensch, George Perez, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman troop into and take over my office. We're going to talk about Robin 1 and Robin 2, I'm informed. Well, first of all, We'll never call them by those names. And secondly, I can't tell you any more than that. Uh, or, what do you say? I can't tell you any more yet. But the meeting lasted until 5.19 p.m., and that's the time I have to leave the office. And then the rest of the column is just uh, Dick's commute home. He falls asleep by 10 o'clock to start it all over again. Now that uh, two-hour talk is obviously uh, Doug and George and Len and Marv coming in to hash out what is going to become of both Dick, uh, <laughs> Dick Grayson and this new character who had just appeared for the first time in Batman 357 in December of 1982, a redheaded kid with a trapeze family known as Jason Todd. So this is a conversation that they are having about Robin 1 and Rob Robin 2. So 
he's not talking Earth 1, Earth 2. He's talking Dick Grayson and Jason Todd and, and the notion that if Jason Todd becomes Robin, the new Robin, uh, what is going to become of Dick Grayson? So this is laying all this kind of groundwork, obviously, for everything that's going to happen in New Teen Titans. Because at the time, in January of 1983, New Teen Titans was up to issue 30, where Terra had joined the team for some New Year's adventures with Raven and the Brotherhood of Evil. Uh, we would learn later in the year that she's the traitor, and eventually that would lead to um, Dick Grayson giving up being Robin um, by the close to by the end of the year. I think I wrote here, yeah, 10 months away from January. And we already, as I said, had the debut for Jason Todd, and he also is about nine, ten months away of putting on the Robin costume for the first time. This is all pre-crisis. Um, uh, he puts on the costume for the first time, but he doesn't actually become Robin right away, but soon he will. So this is the conversation on this day in January of 1983 that these men had uh, that was going to you know, steer both of these characters. And the reason Doug is included is up to this point, Jerry Conway is writing Batman, but Doug is going to take over Batman uh, in March of 1983. So all of this stuff, this is like history in the making. So they're having this meeting in January. Most of this stuff will happen by the end of the year. And eventually Dick Grayson will become Nightwing in uh, 1984. So a two-hour conversation about the future of these characters and very much in the way that the death of Gwen Stacy may have been like Marvel Comics growing up. When you change Dick Grayson from Robin to Nightwing, that is DC growing up and whether you like it or not. And um, this is charting a course that would completely change you know not only those characters but dc comics for for decades so that's amazing that's so cool now whether this day in the life is actually like a week in the life like maybe maybe it's not really all from one day maybe it's from a couple days or a couple weeks but still uh, a fascinating little peek back to january of 1983 all right there you go that's your meanwhile monday to kick us off for this week that chunk of rock was going to attract trouble, but I didn't expect a crook like Hammerhead. Now, why is a smart crook like you pulling a crazy stunt like this? You've always seemed so level-headed. I'm warning you, Webhead. Butt out! Timeline Tuesday. Timeline Tuesday. Finishing up comic history for the month of July by going back 50 years ago. To July of 1972 and 75 years ago to July of 1947. As always, these are release dates, not cover dates, as much as my research can suss out. So we go to 50 years ago, July of 1972. This is very Marvel heavy. Uh, Avengers 104 is the last issue of Roy Thomas's 70 issue run on the Avengers, counting a few annuals. Uh, this story is the Avengers versus the Sentinels with art by Rich Buckler and Joe Sinnott. The letter page has a message from Roy Thomas explaining why he has to leave the book. He had been promoted to editor-in-chief and he just needed to cut back on some of his writing. And then there's an introduction with the new writer who would come onto the book, Steve Englehart. With Daredevil 92, this is during the Jerry Conway, Gene Colan era, the title gets renamed to Daredevil and the Black Widow, and it would run that way up to issue 107 uh, at the end of uh, 1973, and then with the issue 108, the title would return again to Daredevil, the Man Without Fear. In Amazing Spider-Man 113, as the intro clip to this segment might have clued you in, that is the first appearance of the character known as Hammerhead. This is uh, by Jerry Conway again, with art by John Romita. 
And Journey into Mystery number one, volume two, number one, would start to run for 19 issues. This is the first mention of Shuma Gorath, a character that you may have seen in uh, Doctor Strange, Multiverse of Madness, the one with the big eye. Um, this title, I haven't read it, but just looking at it and realizing that it is, uh, you know, pretty much based on a lot of Robert E. Howard stuff, uh, part of their Cthulhu mythos, uh, feels like it's Marvel's attempt to try to capture what was happening in Tomb of Dracula, since that was all, you know, um, Dracula and, and the horror monsters. This one is going into... Uh, another corner of horror with a whole new set of characters. The lead feature, Dig Me No Grave, was by Roy Thomas and Gene Colan, adapted from Howard, as I mentioned, and as I mentioned, uh, featured the first mention of Shuma Gorath, not the first appearance. And then Marvel would also release Doc Savage, The Man of Bronze, issue number one. It would only run for eight issues, also by Roy Thomas, Steve Unglehart, Ross Andrew, Jim Mooney, and others. Over at DC, DC 50 years ago, July of 1972, we have the 100th issue of House of Secrets, and in one of their other horror titles, Forbidden Tales of Dark Man Mansion number 7, we had the first appearance of the host known as Charity, Although I'm not sure if the name comes from this actual series or from later stories. Um, I didn't see the name in that first issue. I might have missed it. So, oddly enough, this is one of the many uh, horror hosts from DC that was not involved in Neil Gaiman's Sandman. But this character would show up in James Robinson's Starman series and also in Kirk Busiek's Trinity series as well, plus a few other titles here and there. The creative team on uh, Dark Mansion number seven for that story was Robert Kaniger, Howard Chaikin, Tony Dezuniga, so I have to assume those are uh, the creators, the creators of Charity. And also 50 years ago, Again, to uh, just dip back into some of my first comics reading um, sometime in the 70s, we had a few more Richie Rich titles beginning in July of 1972. Is it any wonder that I was reading so much Richie Rich, Richie Rich as a kid? We had Richie Rich Bank Book Number 1, which would last for 59 issues, and Richie Rich Jackpots Number 1, which would run for 58 issues. Okay, let's go to 75 years ago, July of 1947, in World's Finest Comics, number 30, in a story entitled The Penny Plunderers. We have the story that would eventually give us the giant penny in Batman's Batcave. This was by Bill Finger, Bob Kane, Ray Burnley, Irish Schnapp, featuring a character known as Joseph Coyne, C-O-Y-N-E, but obviously Joseph Coyne, uh, and there's a panel where he's saying pennies and coppers, meaning police, pennies and coppers, they did this to me, pennies, coppers, copper pennies, I hate them all, when I get out, I'll get back at coppers and pennies, I'll fight coppers with pennies, every job I pull will involve pennies, my crime symbol will be pennies. See, just that easily a villain is born. Also 75 years ago, All-American Comics number 89, uh, written by Robert Kaniger, again, Erwin Hassan, edited by Julia Schwartz. In a Golden Age Green Lantern story, we have the first appearance of the Harlequin. Not Harley Quinn, but the Golden Age Harlequin, who was known as Molly Maine. And she was a secretary, and there was this radio pitch going on to try to promote some kind of mascot for a company. And they drum up a costume, and it's the costume of the Harlequin. So she decides to uh, assume the roles of the Harlequin so that she can get close to the Green Lantern, who, is sh who she's in love with. 
she has a panel that says, uh, I never had a date because I was too athletic. No man could beat me in sports. I had to hide my talents, become a mousy secretary. Now, for the first time, I meet Green Lantern, my match, and he has no time for me, only crooks. So part romance, part uh, superhero story. Um, we would see more of this character in All-American Comics, in Green Lantern, Green Lantern Quarterly, uh, Infinity Inc., where I believe that's where I first read the character, JSA, Justice Society of America, Solomon Grundy, during uh, around the time of Black, Blackest Night. Uh, she would eventually join the Injustice Society of America, and this is the woman that Golden Age Green Lantern, Alan Scott, would eventually marry uh, during Infinity, Inc. Once we find out all the origin story of Jade and Obsidian and who their real mother wa was, uh, it was Alan Scott's first wife, and then along comes um, this other character, and, and she becomes his second wife, and so on and so forth, however that goes. The thing that I learned about this character is when you look at her design and you look at her leggings and her little blue booties, she has she has uh, orange and black leggings and little blue booties, it's exactly the same as the Silver Age Flash Rogue known as the Trickster. And, you know, what is a Harlequin? What is a Trickster? They're all jester characters. Um, you know, there's, there's obvious, uh, differences in definition, but it's all kind of the same thing. So I was, I, I don't know if there's ever been a story that has connected that and maybe the booties that Trickster wears, maybe Harlequin wore them, you know, like that's a golden age story, uh, or, or a, a retcon story waiting to happen. Uh, so I, I like that. I liked that as I was researching that, I was like, that looks really familiar. And then, figured that out. I don't know if anybody's made that connection. If not, you heard it here first. All right, there you go. Those are your anniversaries, uh, finishing up your anniversaries for the month of July. It's another Wednesday Night Fever, where I'm going to give you some quick recommendations for comics that ship the week of Wednesday, July 27th. But I'm also going to start off with two reviews of two current comics, one of them being uh, Batman 125 and Detective Comics 1062, 1062. The reason I'm picking these two comics is because both of them have had a major um, push because of the new creative teams going on the book. And I decided to read them in an attempt to, you know, stay current in the current conversation and to give you my quick thoughts on both of these titles, Batman 125 and Detective Comics uh, 1062. The one that I preferred, Detective Comics. That wins out uh, with these two titles. Even though it is often looked at as the secondary title, I really liked Detective Comics. I really like the first story, and I really like the backup story as well. So this is um, starting the new creative team of Rom V and Raphael Albuquerque, Dave Stewart, Mar on letters with an even uh, Evan Cagle cover, Gotham Nocturne Overture Part One, and it is basically a story where. Um, Something seems to be going wrong with the Batman, and there are he's wrestling with, with his inner demons and a looming mortality, the blurb says. And then the curtains rise on something new, something eerie, a musical tune that seems to haunt people, a demon, etc., who you find out at the end of the issue. And a family that is making their way back to Gotham, to perhaps restore, reclaim Arkham, Arkham Asylum, which apparently had, had been destroyed in a previous story. So the reason I liked this uh, issue is, first of all, I thought it was very well written, and I always enjoy Raphael Albuquerque's artwork. Uh, so that was uh, fairly awesome. And 
there just was something compelling about the story. It opens in an opera, and it's a haunting opera of this, of course, this bat-like demon um, that is being called forth. And there's some panels with the audience members looking on, and they just look so, so shocked. Uh, Bruce Wayne is supposed to be there, but of course he's out being Batman, and he's out on the docks, and he's roughing up some some people, and comes across a creature who looks like some kind of cross between Clayface and the Phosphorus Man or Solomon Grundy, um, and and then Talia shows up and she she tells Batman what's going on that something is coming, and basically warns him, warns Bruce Wayne, r- warns Batman they're coming, and you are not prepared. During this battle is when his timing seems to be off. And he has some kind of heart thing that happens. So he runs a whole bunch of tests and he can't find out what it is. And in the meanwhile, he's talking to Nightwing. Nightwing has an appearance in here. He managed, Batman managed to take one artifact from the dock. And it's a box that he doesn't recognize. And then we cut to a family in some other fictional city. um, And they are... Uh, let's see, their last name is Orgam, O-R-G-H-A-M, and there's a mother who has a deed, it looks like a deed, she calls it her leg, our legacy, and it looks like a deed to Arkham, and she tells her son, who's known as Arzan, that he has one year to rebuild his legacy, their legacy in Gotham, and that his brother Gael is already in Gotham, Gael was the one who was behind the shipment at the docks that Batman busted up. And then at the end, while Batman's kind of just like snoozing, all of a sudden, here comes Barbados, the demon, the bat demon known as Barbados, right out of Bruce Wayne and and looks like it's haunting him. And then Bruce Wayne wakes up and the box that he uh, managed to acquire turns out to be a music box. And it ends there. So um, I just really appreciated a lot of the interesting uh, aspects to the story in terms of um, imagery and in terms of trying to set mood and atmosphere. The story feels a little timeless. It feels like, it. yes, it could take place with whatever came before in Detective Comics. It feels like it could take place sometime in Batman's life. You know, even with Nightwing's appearance, they don't necessarily make connections to whatever is going on in Nightwing's title. The character of Talia, she was just involved in that whole Shadow War thing, but again, there's no mention of it. So that might frustrate some people, but it is clear that it is set sometime after the events of whatever was going on previous to this. That opening opera stuff is really great because it's just, it's got a lot of, you know, imagery and metaphor and whatever. I did not expect the ending, that it would be bookended by the ending with Barbados, Barbados, and however you say that character's name. And it's, what I like about it is Romvi is not necessarily touching on whatever was happening, like in metal and death metal and all that. This feels like he's picking up threads from Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum that did feature like this haunting bat shadow creature or Batman 452 through uh, Batman 454, which also had, um, you know, mentions of this character. And then, of course, during Final Crisis, the whole return of Bruce Wayne, where this demon version was called something like a hyper adapter. So it feels like he's digging into the more primal aspects of the Bat God, not necessarily the multiverse stuff that Scott Snyder dealt with, uh, with metal and death metal. It feels like this might be more related to um, those early stories. And there are many others that I just haven't read that connect back to like Gotham's origins. And then you have this family which may be, you know, the Arkham family, maybe they changed their name. So I don't know. I don't know what Romvi is like layering on top of, He's you know, sort of layering this new history on top of older history and where it's all coming from. Um, but I just really enjoyed it. I just, I, I liked the creepiness of it. And um, 
you know, I, I was a fan of the, the first story. Then I read the second story, a backup tale featuring Commissioner Gordon, and it's entitled Coda, which is perfect. You know, if the, if the first thing is called Overture and this is a coda, you know, it's just it's keeping within a theme, which I like. Um, this story is by Simon Spurrier and the artist known as Danny, Danny, Danny Stripes, I believe. Uh, really great artwork. I even think I like this story more than the first one. There was something just compelling about uh, a Commissioner Gordon who has returned from his travels trying to get all of the Arkham villains that escaped from Arkham, I guess. He's no longer Commissioner. He feels like he's not needed anywhere, and he gets set on this missing persons case, which brings him to Arkham Asylum, and it's a, a young boy or a younger man known as Jonas, um, who his uh, mother, who is strung out, she 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 finds Gordon through through certain means and um, says, "Can you please help find my son?" and says that he's involved in all secrets and strange passion, passions. So the story is quick. It's only a number of pages, six or seven or so. It's told well. It's drawn really well. And I liked that this is where I learned that Arkham had been destroyed. Uh, so there's a slight connection to the first story, and it makes me think they may converge somewhere down the road as well. But if you're looking out at if you're looking for, like, uh, you know, Gordon down on his luck and getting into Gordon's head and away from the Gotham PD um, and, and you know, a different look at, at Gordon who doesn't have all of his resources, it's a fairly interesting take on that. He calls Arkham the liver of Gotham. I thought that was a clever observation. And then at the end, he does find Jonas. Jonas has long hair. He has a giant bird tattoo on his back. It almost looks like a Nightwing, I guess. Um, and then there's a, uh, a picture of the word sorrow. So that led me to some research. And obviously, there's that nursery rhyme, one for sorrow, two for joy, three for a girl, four for a boy, which I think was also in a Counting Crows song. And it's about magpies. And apparently, there's a superstition that uh, if you see a magpie, it could give you bad or good luck. So maybe that's what Romvi is is playing with here, and that's why there's that bird image on the back. It does uh, have reminisce. Um, it's reminiscent of of a, of a magpie. So uh, yeah, just creative, interesting, good storytelling, a very good comic. Then we get to Batman one twenty five, which also has a backup tale. And this story is by Chip Zartsky, Jorge Jimenez, uh, Tomé Moray, Clayton Cowles. And there is a backup story, as I mentioned, by Catwoman, by the same writer, Belen Ortega and Luis Guerrera, also Clayton Cowles on letters. Uh, this is also a, a, you know, a fresh new start for Batman, who also in this tale is feeling lost and uh, is chasing after the penguin who has decided to kill rich people. Um, he's Penguin has decided that uh, they have stripped Gotham of all it's worth and they should no longer be around. He's trying to make himself a man of the people, and of course Batman's not going for it. And in the middle of a confrontation where he thinks Batman's going, I mean, Penguin's going to be, and it turns out to be Clayface, Tim Drake is with him, and Tim gets shot, shot in the neck, and he has to rush Tim to the hospital. And at the end, between having a conversation with Selina, uh, who is now, you know, kind of hooking up with a character known as Valmont, um, between that, between uh, losing his soldiers or Tim getting hurt, he's no longer wealthy. One of his friends was killed by the penguin. Uh, he basically feels like he has... Oh, and then he's also branded a murderer. Batman's branded a murderer because he goes to visit Penguin. And Penguin's actually in a hospital and is dying. Uh, pops a pill and apparently kills himself. Maybe, maybe not, while he's talking to Batman and he's trying to get revenge on the Batman. So between all these things, Batman feels lost. 
So then out from the bat cave pops this bat robot, I guess. Calls himself Failsafe, which is the title of the story. And that's where this issue ends. And, you know, I read this issue. And when I got to the end, I was like, wow, that's like reading so many other stories that I've read. So many bits of things that... It's not that I'm a longtime Batman reader, but I've read a lot of the high points. If you're a newer reader, you may not recognize all these things, but it just, as I'm reading it, it kept kind of sparking. I'm not, I was like, oh, that's from this, and oh, that's from this. But it's not in a clever way. It's almost like Chip Zdarsky took things that he wanted, things that he thought were cool about other previous Batman writers threw it on the floor and say, okay, when I need something, when I need a clever whatever moment for Batman or something or dialogue for Penguin, let me see. Oh yeah, I'll pull this from Frank Miller and I'll pull this from from Grant Morrison and ooh, here, let me use this moment from Christian Bale in Batman Begins. And I mean, it it felt kind of forced and the artwork is great. It's, it's you know, very decent artwork. The story just did not hold up for me um, because there were just too many pings and echoes to previous things without it being fully cemented in the story. It just was like a writer kind of going, yeah, I read all this stuff and I'm going to show you how clever I am by throwing it all in here. So there's echoes of year one where... Uh, Penguin is talking about the wealthy, and he says, The wealthy of Gotham have fed long enough. Your feast is over. That's a line directly from year one, where Batman says the same thing to criminals and to the mob and all that. Um, we have Christian Bale, uh, whenever he's threatening somebody in those early Batman movies, there's like a moment where you can just see Batman yelling at a criminal, and it just reminded me of that. Um it opens with a dream with the three Jokers. When Tim Drake gets shot, it feels like Death in the Family. There's a reference to Death in the Family with Jason Todd. There's a line, the city needs me to go to work. Feels like Batman, also feels like Daredevil, feels like Frank Miller. Not quite sure where that comes from. I don't remember. Um, uh, the criminal's like, oh my God. And Batman says, not God, not even close. I mean, that's, again, typical Batman dialogue Batman's or Penguin's plans feels it starts to feel like it's from like Batman Returns where he's going after like all the firstborn or the first sons of Gotham right um Batman says nobody dies today that felt familiar then the whole thing of finding out that Penguin is sick and he's just doing this as like kind of like revenge it's the Penguin's last stand felt like Kevin Smith doing uh, Daredevil, Guardian Devil, and what he did with Mysterio in that story. Uh, I was like, that just triggered all of that to me as I was reading it. So, oh, and then you get to the end, and we get this fail-safe robot coming out of the Batcave, and I was like, oh, is this like when Batman totally lost himself into the Zuranar character, you know, where he's sort of um, uh, put like some kind of suggestive trigger and then became Zuranar. And like, this is the same thing. I mean, that's what a failsafe is, right? When things go wrong and you have a failsafe. So it's almost, it's just almost way too literal, I guess. So I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. It's pretty to look at, but I didn't like it. Then we get a backup story. Again, same same um, writer on the backup story, but uh, the artist is Belen Ortega, as I mentioned, and the artwork's fine. The story features, first of all, it features Catwoman. And I'm like, okay, Catwoman has a title. Why are we doing this with Catwoman? And the whole thing is a bunch of gangsters. I'm, I guess most of them might be new. Some of them might we might have seen from previous stories. I don't know. They're at the Iceberg Lounge, and with Penguin being dead, quote-unquote dead, uh, they want to get their hands on, on the Iceberg Lounge. And uh, they start to battle, but then they are interrupted by the Underbroker, which is a character, I guess, that's in 
uh, Batman Comics, um, who also has a robot lawyer who tells everybody that there is a will, and in seven days' time or ten days' time, Penguin will, they will read the will, and then you'll get to hear who's going to be in charge of the Iceberg Lounge. Um, Catwoman is there in the Iceberg Lounge because she's trying to be, you know, she's trying to make things right before this, you know, this whole lawyer thing comes about. Um, she goes back to her apartment. The robot lawyer shows up and says, look, I need your help. I'm good at what I do, but I'm going to need your help in finding uh, the people that are listed in this will. There are 10 people that he needs to get a hold of, and they are all the children of Penguin, the kin of Penguin. And this lawyer robot needs Catwoman to go get them. Up until that point, up until the last scene in Catwoman's apartment, I was like, okay, it's fine. The dialogue is kind of cliche and everybody's got to be witty and make jokes about each other. And um, it feels light. There doesn't feel like there's much weight. Then you get the story with the robot and the underbroker who I don't know. So I don't know what the history is there. And that's okay. When we got to the scene in the apartment, Catwoman's apartment, I was like, okay, now you've kind of hooked me. Like this, him needing Catwoman's help, Catwoman not really wanting to help, but she's going to get paid. And then you find out it's the heirs of Penguin. Okay, now that's a little bit stuff that I was like, all right, I can get into all that. But as I said before, why Catwoman? She has her own title. Why not somebody else in the larger Batman universe? Somebody that is also a villain that skirts the line. Or somebody else within the DC universe that sometimes gets folded into the Batman universe. Um, I don't know. It just felt it felt like she already has a title. Why does she need more focus? And is it just because um, uh, Chip Sadarsky wants to write Catwoman? But then again, like, I was like, I, I didn't, I thought the writing of her was kind of boring, generic, typical, let's make her sassy. I don't know. I just didn't like it. I did not like Batman 125. It's not the worst comic. And if you've never read Batman, you know, if you haven't read Batman in a while, maybe it's a good jumping on point. I would put my money on detective and, um, wait for Batman in the trade, maybe, or wait for people's reactions to the larger story. So there you go. My two reviews for Wednesday Night Fever. Here are my recommendations for this week. Ant-Man 1 of 5 by Al Ewing and Tom Riley and company, set in the years before that Hank Pym married uh, Janet, uh, at least the first issue. Apparently, this miniseries will explore the history of every hero called Ant-Man. And as much as I loved the Defenders miniseries, I was like, okay, I got to give this a shot. It's Al Ewing. And um, I may try to read the first issue for a future review. From Image Comics, the Bolero trade paperback by Wyatt Kennedy and Luana Vecchio. Collecting the five-issue series, I read the first issues um, of this. It was quite long, but it was really good. And I'm looking forward to reading more. And Luana Vecchio just won an Eisner for promising new... Uh, creator, I think. Uh, from Marvel, Janice Vell, Captain Marvel 1 of 5 by Peter David and Juan Ramirez, bringing back Janice Vell, who was the son of the original Captain Marvel. Um, I loved the series that featured this character that spun out of Avengers Forever with Peter David and Chris Cross. It ran for 30 issues. Then there was a second volume that ran for 35 issues. They had to do a second volume because Peter David got caught up in, well, complaining that Joe Quesada and Marvel were raising cover prices, 75 cents, and he wasn't happy about that. And he felt like if you raise prices, some of the lower tier titles are gonna are not going to survive. So it became this like pissing contest between Peter David, Joe Quesada, and um, Bill Jemis, and it became the You Decide event. And there were three titles, Captain Marvel, Marvel, Marville, like Smallville, Marville, and Ultimate Avengers. Which one would win out? Which one would win? Well, the second volume for Captain Marvel ran for 35 issues, so clearly it ran, it won. 
Um, also from Image Comics, Ghost Cage, Trade Paperback, three issues, uh, Nick Dragato, Caleb Golner, uh, Nick Dragato of East of West. So that's been now collected in its own little trade paperback. And then from DC, Young Justice Targets 1 of 6 by Greg Weissman and Christopher Jones, following up on Young Justice Phantoms. And also Superman Space Age, 1 of 3, Mark Russell, Mike Allred, and company. I did not order this because I I guess I, I, guess I didn't realize what it was all going to be about. This is like part DC New Frontier, part Superman and Batman Generations, part marvel's uh life story where it looks like they're trying to treat superman as if he existed um in real time a little bit from the space age from the silver age maybe um or earlier up to the present and there are huge nods to the crisis and in fact that's why it kicks off is because it's 1985 and there's going to be a big crisis and pariahs in it and it makes Superman look back on his life and reflect on his life. And there are a lot of political things going on. I mean, it is a Mark Russell comic, so, you know, of course it's going to be political. And it's a journey through U.S. history and U.S. culture starring Superman and the Superman characters and other characters as well. So, I mean, initially I was like, oh, are we actually going to get the pre-crisis Superman? But we don't really. In any event, I did not order it and I really should have. So I am going to look for this because this is absolutely in my wheelhouse. So check that out. There you go. That Those are your recommendations. And that is Wednesday Night Fever for this week. If you're a Marvel fan, I want to tell you about my podcast, X-Men Unraveled. Each episode, I cover the X-Men comics in chronological order. From ancient Egypt to World War II and beyond, the famous mutants have a long and storied history. No prior comic book knowledge is necessary. In each episode, I break down a storyline straight from the comics to walk you through the X-Men universe and introduce each of the characters. So check out X-Men Unraveled wherever you get your podcasts. Over a billion dollars. The Mega Millions jackpot is over a billion dollars. You're not going to get all of it. I get that, right? The IRS is going to win more than you're going to win. But over a billion dollars. Of course I played. I have to imagine a lot of people played. That's why That's why it is the way it is, right? And of course the question is, what would you do? What would you do if you won? Are you going to be one of those people that buys all those houses and buy the, buys all those cars and fancy jewelry and clothes? You know, you're going to take care of your family, your friends, all that stuff. Somebody asked me, somebody asked me, you know, what would I do? What would become of Peter? Friday wrap up. Well, I'm back. I'm back, so, you know, recording Friday, so, or for Friday, so, uh, obviously, I didn't win. Ugh. Too bad. Uh, not much here uh, for this last segment for uh, this uh, digest, and also to wrap up uh, the month of July. Uh, it is July 29th. That is the 13th anniversary for the Tower podcast, which I did release a new episode before the anniversary so that's good um yeah 13 years 13 years and 41 episodes again do the math on that terrible you know best laid plans and all that stuff speaking of best laid laid plans um i have a couple things that i'm gonna announce or talk about in some upcoming digests um some changes going on with me work-wise some changes go uh or some things i want to try to do for the podcast because of those work changes. Um, and I'll talk about that maybe in the next um, next digest or so. Uh, I wanted to quick drop a few feedback uh, things that I got um, from a couple people. Um, I've been getting a lot of feedback, which is great. So um, usually I wait until a new month 
and drop all of it into one segment. But um, uh, I want to take a look, uh, you know, just at a few here, so I'm not piling up uh, in a future episode. So from John Grigas, talking about the July 24th Digest, talks about the Image 30th Anniversary uh, Anthology, and says, I too wondered why the anthology didn't harken back uh, to the earliest days of the group. But like I often remind myself, the answer to all of my questions is money. The anthology certainly represents the Image Comics of today. It seems like every month in previews, Image's mostly number one issues of something unique, and the volume of series series launches is staggering. So I'm thinking that it is serving that need by being a way to get hands and eyes on new projects by making it into an anniversary celebration. And John likes it. John also offered up a pet peeve, which is great. I got a few other ones as well. John says, I guess the only pet peeve I have is when publishers, especially DC, put house house ads on the page turn of a critical story moment. The first thought is often that of shock. How did Batman show up here? And why is he in a full page spread? It takes me out of the moment of the story. I like instead how Dynamite does most of their house ads, putting five or six pages at the back of the book. Although I've heard some people say they don't like that either because, you know, they're reading, they're reading, they're reading, and then they get to like, you know, a fourth of the comic and it's all ads and they feel sort of cheated by that. Um, I don't have a preference. It would be great if there weren't any ads or if there were that they were all house ads like in the 80s and the 90s. Um, but yeah, I can see where that would, that has happened, right? Especially when you're reading a comic and then there's that dumb candy bar ad or something like that, that features the same characters like the justice league or whatever. And you're just, you're reading and you're, this is what, you know, John's talking about. You're like, wait, this isn't the story. This is an ad that I don't like that. I don't like. So I'm with you on that, John, uh, from Mike a also bringing in some pet peeves. Not all publishers do this, but I hated it. I hated it when they moved all of the publisher information from the first page to the back page of the comics, talking about the Indicia, I guess. I always liked that quick reference for dates, and when you have to flip to the back page, you risk being spoiled on the ending. Uh, and then also wrote, titles with too many colons in them just, just drives me bonkers. And the final one, and I long for the days of editor notes telling us when and where a character's last appearance was and how that fits into the current story, where else we can find them in upcoming stories, just little nuggets of info that gives the reader a sense of connected universe. In one of those Batman tales, I think it was in the Catwoman backup that I talked about in the Wednesday segment, I think they had an editor's note, which I was surprised by. To the point about too many colons, you know... I have a very, I just have a spreadsheet for my comic book inventory, and I come up on this all the time, especially with Batman, right? Like, if you just have a title, Batman, that's fine. Then you have something like Batman Beyond, okay, but what about Batman Killing Time? You know, I think that's the title of it, right? Like, for me, so it's Batman colon Killing Time. For me, that means they're separating the Batman part of it, right? So you would, in my inventory, I would have the regular Batman title, Batman colon Killing Time, and then Batman Beyond. But in some lists that I've seen in alphabetical order, Batman Beyond would come before Batman colon Killing Time because it's Batman Beyond with the B versus Batman Killing Time with the K. But you put that colon in there, well, that makes me say say the main title is Batman, right? Same thing with like Batman versus Superman. That isn't necessarily just, or I guess I should say Batman versus Robin, like that's coming up. So that's not Batman colon versus Robin, it, Robin it's Batman versus Robin. So is it then Batman, Batman Killing Time, Batman Beyond? Batman versus Robin. But in my brain, I I still put Batman versus Robin before Batman Beyond because it's still kind of like it's it's Batman Batman Beyond is its own thing. Like if it was Batman Beyond versus Robin, okay, then I would put it 
you know, this is how my brain works. I, I don't know what librarians do and I don't know, <laughs> I don't know how they handle things like that because it just gets to be so crazy. There's just too much of it. And where does one fit in the other and how does it all make sense? And, uh, you know, so yeah, that's, uh, if that's what you're talking about, Mike, um, my inventory is a nightmare and don't read it because you wouldn't like it. Okay. That's it. That's it for this week. Uh, we're going to wrap up the digest here. Send me an email, peter at the daily rios.com on any of the topics that I talked about here, or if you have means to create an audio file, I will gladly play it on like a Tuesday talk back. Or if you just want to take over one of these many, many, many topics that I do for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, I'll, I'll throw it in, you know, give me five minutes of audio and I'll put it in. Go to the website, thedailyrios.com. Go to the Daily Rios Instagram. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Review me on your favorite podcast catcher and let me know if I am not there. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 572 for Sunday, July 31st, 2022. Talk to you soon.